Today, our uh, conversation is what we find ourselves in as week three of a series that we're calling Vulnerable, a conversation on what it looks like to basically put ourselves out there, to take the risk to be honest with one another and with who God is in our lives. And that is something that any of us who've entered into a vulnerable moment know is much easier said than done. This week, our conversation is about the rich young ruler, a story that you find both in all three uh, gospel narratives, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, speak of it. The story of a young man who finds himself at the feet of Jesus, asking Jesus some of the most significant questions for his life. Jesus is teaching and traveling when we find ourselves in this narrative. He's moving through towns and communities as he does at this time in his ministry. He's shaking hands. He's kissing babies. He's basically on tour in many ways. Folks are coming to him, swarming him with their sick, with their tired, with their needs. He's in Judea when we meet this narrative and we find this man who realizes that the crowd that is gathered around Jesus in his community is about to move on. And the young man in this narrative is in charge of something. We're not told what. We're told he's a ruler. We're told he's a very wealthy Think of a hyper-educated, trust fund, baby, startup, millionaire, retire by 35 sort of person. The Greek verbiage used to explain him tells us he's probably only in his 20s and 30s. But he's amassed quite a fortune and he's in charge of quite a bit. He is a relentless maximizer. He's milked every inch of opportunity out of every situation in his life, and he is not about to let this famous rabbi leave town without getting a moment with him. So he makes his way through the crowd, and we're told he throws himself on the ground. He throws himself on his knees in front of Jesus in his designer clothes and his fancy apparel. He throws himself on his knees, and he says, good teacher, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus looks back at him and goes, why do you call me good? Interestingly, Jews at that time rarely used the word good in an introduction or a moment like this. Good was a word reserved for God himself. And Jesus says, why do you call me good? They didn't know at that time, right, that Jesus was Lord. It's almost as if this guy is trying to butter up Jesus, right? This is a guy that wouldn't kneel in front of anybody. People kneeled in front of him and he kind of overdoes it on the adjectives. And he says, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus turns around and gives him sort of a pat answer. Well, you know, there are these commands you must follow. And he lists off five or six of the 10 commandments, the The easier ones, maybe to check off the doing ones, don't steal, don't kill. Jesus says to the guy, do those things. And he says, I I got that. I got that. And then he turns and we're told in scripture, he looks at him with love and the whole tone of the conversation changes. And he uses this man's language. He meets him right where he's at. He says, you know what? There's one thing you lack, one thing. 
This is a maximizer, right? Yes, yes. Okay, tell me one thing. One thing I got to do to bring everything I've got on earth with me into heaven, to, to seal the deal, to, to maximize this moment with this famous rabbi. What is that one thing? And Jesus looks at this man of incredible wealth and he says, give up everything you've got. Give it all away to the poor and come and follow me. You feel the adrenaline just sort of drain out of the moment. Guy probably starts shaking a little bit less. He gets up, maybe brushes the dust off his legs and maybe slumps for the first time in a very long time and walks away. We're told in scripture he walked away for he was a man of great wealth. And yes, this is a narrative, a story about wealth. It's an invitation, yes, in many ways to release our death grip on possessions and give away some of the goods. Yes, it's a conversation about that. But more than anything, this is a conversation about identity. This was a self-made man. He worked very hard to take the things that his family had given him and, and propel himself into the future. This was a man who took every inch of opportunity outside of what he'd been given to amass and acquire and maximize. And his identity was in his stuff. Right? Can you imagine going back to your social circle if you were him and saying, well, I kind of switched things up a bit. I won't be at that social engagement because I gave up what I had. Now, how do you explain to your wife or your children or the folks you're leading why suddenly who you were changed a bit? His invitation from Jesus was, yes, to give his stuff up, but his invitation from Jesus, more than that, was to put his identity in the Lord Jesus himself instead of his possessions. Just one thing. Just one thing, Jesus says. Don't let your possessions define you. Don't let your acquire, everything you've acquired define you. Let me, the Lord of the universe, who's looking at you now in love, let me define you. We don't know what he did. We're told he walked away. Maybe he came back at another time. We don't always get the end of the story in scripture. Nicodemus is the same way. If you've read any of the narratives about him, we don't always know what people decided. But in that moment, it was too much. And he walked away. So what does it look like for us to move into a narrative like that with our lives, to give up our self-created identities and place our identities in God himself. You know, the search and the competition, the search for identity and the competition that, that surrounds us is is thick. It, it invades our lives, whether you're young or old, whether you're a student or a graduate, whether you're single or parenting, married, not married. The competition and the search to identify ourselves by our accomplishments drives our culture. We find ourselves, whether at work or home, in a classroom, in our schools, in our friendships, in our marriages, in our places of employment, asking questions like these. Do I matter? Does what I do matter? Does, do I count? 
Does what I do lead to some significance? I, am I okay? Because like you sort of seem okay, so do I seem okay? Can I keep up with the Joneses and the Smiths and the Collins and everybody else? And do my parents, do my neighbors, and do my friends, do they approve? And why does everyone's life on Facebook and Instagram and the cover of People magazine seem to look so much better than my life? What if I'm not enough? What if I'm not good enough, smart enough, strong enough, rich enough, approved enough? What then? And is there enough of the good stuff in life to go around. Can anybody relate? And for all the generous resources that we have in the United States, and yes, I know there are communities that struggle desperately, but overall as a country, we've stocked up the vast majority of goodies when you look at it globally, and for all the stuff we have, we are a culture that lives with a relentless fear of scarcity. We are afraid there's not going to be enough. Author Lynn Twist talks about this in her book called The Soul of Money. And she points out that scarcity is ingrained in us from a very early age. And she suggests we look at something as simple as the game musical chairs, right? What happens in musical chairs? There's not enough seats to go around. Somebody is stuck when the music stops standing. Everybody else got something and the person in the middle didn't. We live with a fear that that is going to be us. And so we often spend our lives buffering ourselves against the possibility of being stuck without something. The rich young ruler, this was how he built his life. Buffering himself against the threat of scarcity. And the result was that he actually lacked the one thing he needed to find the truest abundance. Brene Brown says that scarcity thrives in a culture where everyone is hyper aware of lack. You know, I don't know about you, but for all the things that I feel like I've been blessed with in my life, it's way easier for me to list off the things I still want or the things that are missing than it is for me to list an inventory of all the good things I have. If someone says, well, what are you kind of aiming for? What are your goals next year? They're usually couched in lack. Well, I think we might need a new car and we got to remodel the bathroom. And, you know, I hope that we can get this going or that going or achieve this, or my kid can get into that thing he hasn't gotten into yet. That's where I go. We don't often go to the abundant place, right? Like we have heat, and food, and, and a God in heaven who loves us desperately. We're hyper aware of lack. It's rumored that billionaire John D. Rockefeller was once asked, you know, how much money is enough, right? And his reported response was one more dollar. When a billionaire is quoted for saying just one more thing, it betrays our culture of scarcity. So this rich young ruler, he's at the feet of Jesus, and he's asking, what do, I, what do I need to do to get more out of life and to not miss 
out? What do I do to take up to heaven everything I've got here on earth? What do I need to do, Jesus, to maximize every opportunity? And Jesus looks at him with love, compassion, and mercy. And Jesus says to him, there's one thing, there's only one thing, and it is to put your hope and your identity in me. This is an age-old, lifelong struggle. It is, I think, very acute in our culture, but it is not a novel concept. Cultures and people have been striving against a fear of scarcity and toward abundance forever. Back in the 300s, St. Augustine said, our hearts are restless, longing and restless until they find their rest in thee. And the Gettys in a newer hymn sing about this in Christ alone, right? What do they say? When all our fears and what? Strivings cease. Is it possible to live in such a way that God's abundance is what drives us? Not scarcity. You know, Adam and Eve, when they were in the garden, they had everything. But there was one thing that they saw that they wanted. And so they actually operated out of a scarcity mentality. What if? What if that apple is the key? What if that apple I really need? They moved towards scarcity. In the Exodus narrative, just a few chapters later, right? Uh, the Israelites are slaves in Egypt. They spent years under the tyrannical leadership of Pharaoh. They're finally free. God finally calls them into the wilderness. And what happens after just a short time? They're grumbling. And they say to Moses, who's their leader at the time, gosh, it would have been way better if we had just stayed in Egypt. Here they were, they had freedom, and they had the promises of God before them, and they couldn't fully grasp them. King David is called out later in scripture at a time when he was supposed to rely on God. He was caught numbering his armies and taking an inventory, taking stock of his stuff. And in the story of the prodigal son, right, you have these two brothers and, and one takes everything he's been giving and goes off and parties and squanders it while the other brother stays behind. And the younger brother who took off comes home. And what is the older brother's response? It, it, it's fueled by scarcity. You know, he looks at his dad. He's like, seriously, you're going to let that guy come back home? You're going to give him part of the stuff? What if there's not enough? This is, this is the thread of scripture. And this is often the thread of our lives. And I, you know, personally, I, I stumbled into an amazing opportunity a few years ago. I, I showed up sort of unexpecting and unassuming at a writing conference. And I, I told somebody an idea I had to write a book. And you know what? They said, why don't you write that book? And I said, oh my gosh, I'm going to write a book. And, and I went on and, and, and I, I, I've authored three books and I should stand up here and I should brag and I should say, hey, the Lord let me write three books. Like I have a number, like a library of Congress number. Like I have, I have ink on a page somewhere and I should be very excited about that. But you know what happens when a book comes out? You learn all the little dirty secrets of selling books and it's not easy. And then you find out as an author, there's this thing called a ranking on Amazon. 
And Amazon publishes millions and millions of books. And if you want, you can go look on Amazon and see exactly how you rank against 5 million plus other authors on Amazon. And if you're really crazy, you'll do it a couple times a day. (laughs) Right? And, And I don't know if Dan Meyer's in the room right now. If you're really, really crazy, once in a while you'll go, I wonder what his books are selling like, right? And then you're like, of course, he's selling more books than I am, right? And suddenly, it's not good enough that the Lord of the universe said to me, go ahead and put your ink on paper. I'm going I'm to let you do that. Suddenly, it's all, I didn't sell enough. I better go somewhere and promote my book. And suddenly, the joy and the gift and the creativity that you're blessed with by God ends up spiraling on Amazon.com, right? This is the story of scarcity in our lives. So how, how do we get through this? How do you look at a narrative like the rich young ruler and say, I want to be the guy or the gal who looks at God in that moment and says, all right, <laughs> take it all. Whether it's possessions, whether it's your, your, your joy as an author or a musician or an employee at whatever company you're at, whatever it is you put your identity in, if it's the scholarship that you won 40 years ago that still defines you, you know, whatever it is, how do you give that up and say, all right, I'm going to put my identity in God. And again, I just confessed, easier said than done, right? But the first thing I want us to think about is really truly embracing the fact that God made you enough. You are enough for God. You do not have to strive and please God. We are invited to change some things about our lives that maybe God doesn't love. But when God looks down from heaven, I think some of us, our first inclination is to go, he doesn't want to see me. He doesn't want to see how I live. He, you know, he's upset with us and frustrated with us. And you know what? God is upset with things in the world that are Terrible, like war and violence and terrorism and racism and all that, right? And God wants those things to end. But when God looks down from heaven, he looks on us with eyes of love, the same eyes of love that Jesus looked on this young man. He says, I created you guys. You know, I did the stars and the sun and the moon and the water and the animals. And I said those were good. And then when I made man and woman in Genesis, I decided it was very, very good. And John 15, 15, of all the things that Jesus could say about people, you know what he says in John 15, 15? You are my friends. Friends. Jesus could have called us anything, and he called us as the faithful, his friends. And God is a God of abundance. When there are hungry people, he takes a couple loaves and fishes, and he feeds 5,000 people, and there's 12 full baskets left over At the end in Romans 8, Paul tells us we are joint heirs of God's kingdom. Heirs, we're inheritors. That's good stuff. Philippians 3, he tells us we are citizens of heaven because of grace. Because of grace. Because of our ability to come to God and be vulnerable and say to God, Wow. I've messed up this life of mine and I'm laying it at your feet and I'm asking your grace to wash over it. And Jesus washes over us with his grace and love. And he says, you are enough. Do you believe that? Do you rest in that? Or do you go home and add to your list countless ways to impress God? Because God is never going to love you less. 
but he's also never going to love you more. You're not going to do anything to impress God. So our striving has to cease. And we need to rest and remember that we are enough. God has made us enough. Secondly, embrace the average. I mean, that sort of makes me shudder as I say it. And we're taught to run screaming from average. You know, average exists for a reason, because most of us are it. (laughs) Right? But as a parent, when my kid comes home with average grades, I'm like, oh, that's not going to do. Got to fix that. Does anybody remember Saturday Night Live years ago? uh, Stuart Smalley, right? I'm good enough. I'm smart enough. And doggone it, people like me. Why can't that be enough? Why do I have to outdo you? Why is our culture set on me and you, all of us, exceeding at any cost? Because you know what happens? Sometimes we spend so much resources and energy and money and time on excelling that we miss the gift of ordinary life. The beautiful things of life are ordinary. They're driving around on a road trip when somebody finally decides to break into conversation about the thing that means the most in their life. You know, yes, there's extraordinary moments, and yes, some of us are extraordinarily gifted, but wow, it's totally okay to be average. Sometimes that's what it takes to just sit back and get off the train of pursuing and achieving and achieving and achieving because it's in the ordinary moments where God speaks. And I don't want to read something into the text of the rich young ruler that's not there, but I sometimes wonder, did he go home and sit with that for a little while? Because he probably wasn't the sort of guy that sat down often and did God speak to him in an ordinary moment? This was a man who was told You don't have everything. That's pretty average. All of us are told that at some time or another. Did God speak to him in that moment? He may have. We'll find out one day, Lord willing. It's okay to be average. You are enough for God. Embrace the average. And finally, embrace other people. Embrace other people. You know, our culture pits us against one another. What, what makes for good TV ratings? 20 guys or 20 girls in a house fighting for a bachelor or a bachelorette, right? 10 people thrown on an island with strange food in a strange place they've never been, and we call that survivor. And we tune into that by the millions in this culture because competition makes for good ratings, TV shows about how lovely it is to all just get along don't make the cover of magazines. But when we release ourselves from a mindset of scarcity and dare to make ourselves vulnerable in front of other people and confess we don't have it all together, when we dare to do that, suddenly we're not competitors anymore. Suddenly we're on the same playing field. My favorite quote by C.S. Lewis, I think I quote it almost every time I preach and everywhere I go because I just love it. It's so simple. C.S. Lewis says this. He says, true friendship is born that moment. One person looks at another and says, what? You too? I thought I was the only one. Right? When we embrace other people, we're willing to show our humanity and our flaws 
because it helps them be real with theirs too. And it just takes the whole temperature down. Competition just gets sucked out of the room. When someone walks into a meeting and goes, I screwed up, right? Sometimes that's not a good thing, right? I don't want to tell everybody to go tomorrow to work and be like, I screwed up. It's okay, right? But the reality is there are moments when you do. If you just confess that in your families, in your classrooms, to your kids, to your parents, to your friends, suddenly we're not competing against one another. Suddenly we're partners on a journey. Walter Brueggemann says this, those who sign on and depart the system of anxious scarcity become the history makers in the neighborhood. What does it look like for you and for I to bring our vulnerable selves to our communities and to our people and embrace them and see them not as competitors, but as partners trying to get through this life and trying to get God's good work done? You are enough, and it's okay to be average, and can we embrace others? Timothy Paul Jones is the co-author of a book called Proof, and in it he shares a great story about his then eight-year-old daughter, and he had a couple biological children, and along the way decided to adopt a young girl who had actually been adopted by another family. And that family had tried their hardest to do right by this girl and reached the end of their parenting rope and for whatever reason gave her back over to the system. And Timothy Paul Jones, his family looked at that gal and said, we'll take her, we'll raise her, we'll make her ours. We will adopt her and fully embed her in our family. And this young girl, for whatever reason, the other family she was with, every year they would go to Disney World, and they would take their biological children to Disney World, but they would leave this gal behind with other family members. So a trip to Disney World was, to her, an exclusion from family. And she read it in her heart like she wasn't good enough to get to go to the Magic Kingdom. And so when Timothy Paul Jones adopted this girl, one of the first things on their list was to take her to Disney. And Timothy Paul Jones talks about how all of a sudden, right before the trip, in the weeks leading up to the trip, she started acting out in wild ways, as if almost to secure herself a trip not to Disney World, as if to say, you know you're not going to take me anyway, let's get this over with. I'm going to act up and get myself removed from this trip. And as a family, they continued to coach her and call her out on what she did wrong, but to remind her, no, you're going to Disney. (laughs) And Timothy Paul Jones talks about how they showed up to that magic kingdom on the first day and how it was the normal sort of beautiful, blissful stuff and sort of a nightmare all at the same same time, right? Long lines and overpriced food and, and everything else. But that girl finally made it through the doors of the magical kingdom. And at night, Timothy Paul Jones tells a story after their first day at Disney that he sat down with her and said, how was it? How was your first day at Disney? And like an excited kid, she replayed all her favorite parts of the day, and then said to him before going to bed, Dad, I know I'm here now, not because I was good, but because I'm yours. Because I'm yours, because I belong 
in this family. Friends, this is God's message of grace to us. We are not here because we are good, smart, rich, pretty, young, old, accomplished, talented. We are here because we are part of God's family. And if we can rest in that, and we can operate out of that abundance instead of the tyranny of scarcity, friends, we can change the world. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you call us to abundance. Thank you that you are a God of gracious giving, Lord, that you look down on us and you smile, Lord, that you, are, you have joy when you see us, not anger and disappointment. So, Lord, help us live that way. Help us be the sort of people that bring good things to our community, that bring justice and hope and mercy and love to this world because we know that we're messed up and that together we're with a lot of other messed up people and we don't need to strive and achieve. We just need to rest in you and trust that you will make good out of all our broken parts. Lord, there is more than enough to go around. Thank you for blessing us. In Jesus' name, amen.